Välkommen till Freuds Toolbox, skolans inspirationspodd med fokus på känslor, relationer, lärande och ledarskap. Tillsammans med Kenneth Freud får du inspireras av och lära av nationellt och internationellt ledande experter på evidensbaserat lärande och ledarskap. Hi everyone. In today's episode, we will talk about uh, thinking classrooms in mathematics, but I think also a bit general about thinking in to enhance learning. And to do that, I invited, I think, from math perspective, but also from other perspectives, the best person to to do this to talk to, and that is Peter Lilidal, professor in mathematics. So welcome, Peter. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Excited to be here. Yeah, and and actually, I, I read a, a lot of books, and I, I love to read books about uh, research, evidence-informed learning, and teaching strategies. And uh, normally, I read them really quickly, but uh, I couldn't do your book quickly. It was really interesting reading, but I couldn't read it quick because I stopped and reflected, and stopped and reflected, and stopped and reflected. So it was sort of a slow read, but I, I couldn't do it any other way and I wouldn't oh, like yeah. to do it. So so maybe, yeah, maybe you're sort of, what you try to teach in the book, maybe the book is written in the same way. So sort of enhance. So, yeah, well, I'll take that as a compliment, right? Like yeah. if the book, if the if a book on building thinking classrooms can get the reader to start thinking, then I'm, I'm probably doing something right. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, uh, I think this this episode will be, of course, interesting for math teachers. And I'm working as a principal, a school leader, head of school. And for all with the same role as me, it's I think it's really, really important. I think any teacher would benefit from from listen and also from reading your book. Actually, you don't need to be a math teacher. You, you can take a lot from there uh, to other subjects as well, I would say. In, in fact, when I was... Um... When I was sitting down to write this book, my editor and I spent a fair bit of time talking about whether it should be written for for a general teaching audience or specifically for math education. Yeah. We settled on math education because like that's where my passion is, that's where a lot of the research was done. But there was already a huge movement in building thinking classrooms emerging from my research. Um and we felt we needed to feed that audience. And I think it was the right decision because you know some there are good books about pedagogy and research informed pedagogy yeah. but there's very few that are specific to math education yeah um and math i think is a little bit different than other subjects right and as a, as a former math teacher i remember thinking sitting in meetings sitting in professional development reading books and feeling like yeah okay but is this really going to work the same way in math and i think it's important that we address the specificity of mathematics education yeah I agree. Yeah. And I also think it's important. I mean, everyone knows that you need to to have thinking in the classroom to to get learning, but not so many says how you should do it. Now you do it specifically in math, but it's interesting. It should be sort of the same in every subject, even if you can translate a lot. I think this is, I talked a lot with 
a colleague of yours, another researcher, Professor Jan Hattie, and he always he he think he lacks thinking in the classroom. He wants to have more thinking, more metacognition in the classroom in general. It doesn't say how any way you can make it happen. Yeah, yeah. and you know, like we like, we like to say that we know this is true, but we also, I think, in many ways, assume that it's happening just because we yeah. have the students being active, and and it's not true. And in fact, some of the students I interviewed said things like. Thinking's not important. If it was, they would teach it to us in school, right? So I think that I think we know that thinking is important. I yeah. think I think we know that we want our students to think, and that thinking is necessary for learning. But I think we also forget sometimes that thinking is something we have to work at creating. We can't just assume that because we've given the students things to do that thinking is happening. Yeah, a reflection I made uh, uh, when you sort of made your model. You also made uh, sort of the students to focus more and more on on thinking, of course. But for me, there are many strategies sort of for classroom management that is about the behavior in the beginning, not about uh, sort of make you think more. But when I sort of reflected, you could look at this like a classroom management strategy as well. But it it leads to it's not the, the base, but it is one of the effects as I read it. Yeah, so this is, um, so so part of it is this, right? Yeah. When when do students become problematic? When they're bored. When they're not engaged is when you need to be using classroom management strategies yeah. like crazy. If we, yeah. engagement, engaging our students, getting them thinking is probably the best form of classroom management there is. Yeah. Because an engaged student is a thinking student and an engaged student is, is 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 going to be more active, more involved. They're not going to be bored. They're not going to be problematic. No. Um, but I think something else you said there is really, really important. It's about shaping behavior. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that came coming out in my research over and over and over again is just how much the environment we construct for students also shapes their behavior. And and by and large, the environments we're constructing are, are mirrors of 19th century classrooms. And in the 19th century, the behavior we were looking for was conformity and compliance. Yeah. And now we're looking for very different behaviors. We're talking about 21st century learning skill uh, skills and critical thinking and creativity and equity. These are very different goals. And yet we're still trying to achieve them using 19th century classrooms. So it's we need to shape the environment differently so as to create a space for different behaviors to emerge. Yeah, that's true. And if I compare to sort of the sports area where I'm from as well, then. Uh, Me too. Yeah, that, that in, in the sports area, I mean, you don't have so much behavioral problems if, if you feel progression, if you feel that you, if you compare to a student, if I learn, it is fun. It doesn't have to seem to be fun. I mean, you, you get engagement if you feel progression and development. So I yeah. think that's the same between schools and the sports area. Well, you want to feel some sort of reward for your effort, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In your book there, you, you recommend you have the three first chapters about tasks and, and, and groups and whether students work as a, sort of a course. Why is that? You, you put them together. Like, uh -huh. can, can you sort of explain the first three re really briefly as short as the listeners understand what is this and why? Yeah. Okay. So first of all, building thinking classrooms. 
is yeah. a reaction to two observed phenomena. The yeah. first phenomena was this, that by and large, students spend a huge amount of their time in classroom not thinking. Uh, and in fact, the data that I found was that only 20% of students are thinking at all, and even then only for 20% of the time. And the rest of the students are doing no thinking. Uh, and you know, that data was geolocated to a very specific region of the world, but nonetheless, that was across 40 different classrooms, right? Yeah. Um, so students spend a lot of time not thinking. That was a, 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 a phenomenon number one. And this is a problem, yeah. right? Yeah. Because thinking That's is a, a big problem. Yeah. yeah. Thinking is a necessary precursor to learning. Yeah. Students are not thinking. They're not learning. We got to get them thinking. Um, phenomenon number two was that by and large, the way classrooms look and what happens in classrooms is largely unchanged in the last 100, 150 years. Yeah. Um, you know, Students are still sitting, teachers are still standing, students are still writing in paper, teachers are still writing on some board of some sort. Like we're moving through exercises, the lesson looks the same. I do, we do, you do. There's so many structures. Yeah. Um, and these structures transcend the classroom and actually em embed themselves within the institution, creating what I call institutional norms, right? These are, these are institutionally normative practices. And that was the second phenomenon that I observed that. So the first one is a lot of students are not thinking. The second one is classrooms really haven't changed much. Um, there's these institutionally normative structures that are just pervasive everywhere I go. And then the, together, these two led to a hypothesis. And the hypothesis was that if everywhere I go, I see students not thinking. And everywhere I go, I see these institutionally normative structures. Are they connected? And if yeah. they are connected, it means we're going to have to break some of these normative structures to get students to think. And that's what building thinking classrooms is about, is what are the particular ways we have to break these normative structures? And the normative structures I look at are sort of the 14 core classroom routines that teachers do, right? Mm -hmm. We all use tasks. Everyone uses yeah. tasks. We all form some sort of collaborative groups. Everybody does that. Yeah. It's a very we all have the students work somewhere. We all answer questions. We have students write notes. We have, we have um, students do homework. We do a formative and summative assessment. Like we, yeah. we, these are fourteen core classroom routines that everybody does. Yeah. And what the research was: can we deconstruct those in such a way that we can reconstruct them in a way that maximizes student thinking? Yeah. Um, and each one of those ended yeah. up with a macro move, which is like, what is something major I can do? And then yeah. a bunch of micro moves, which is what are the little things around that that make it better? Um, and the first three, as you say, which is, they, they only became the first three because it became chapters one, two, and three. But three <laughs> yeah. of those practices yeah. are the types of tasks we use. Yeah. So if we want students to think, we have to give them something to think about. Yeah. And so we have to give them tasks that require thinking yeah um so they can't be exercises right so they can't be something i've already shown you how to do because then then it just becomes a mimicking activity yeah. so what were the qualities of a good thinking task it had a low floor everyone could access it, it had yeah. a high ceiling everyone was going to get challenged it had novelty because thinking is what we do when we don't know what to do right and so then then it was a question of how can we construct curricular tasks in such a way that they become thinking tasks. And ironically, they're already thinking tasks. Asking students what's greater, three-fifths or four-sevenths, is an amazing thinking task. 
until we show them how to do it. Then it becomes yeah. a mimicking task, right? Factoring a quadratic, solving a system of linear equations, dividing decimals are all amazing thinking tasks. In fact, one of the lessons I did this week, I, I taught, uh, how many times? I taught, I taught 14 lessons this week in grade one to grade nine classes. Um, one of them we did was division of decimal numbers. Um, and dividing two decimals is an amazing thinking task until we show them how to do it. Then it's a mimicking task. We, we were having them figure this out just by with very little sort of formal instruction, a lot of hints, but just helping them see structure and patterns and then start to figure it out and make conjectures. And by the end, they were dividing two digit numbers by two digit decimals by three digit decimals. Like, mm. and that's within a 40 minute time span. So these are thinking tasks. All of all our math tasks are thinking tasks, or they're not thinking tasks. It actually has more to do with what we do with the task as a teacher. Yeah. If we pre-teach it, it becomes a mimicking task. Um, this the another practice is how we form collaborative groups. Yeah. There are two major ways that teachers form collaborative groups. The first one is called strategic grouping. Yeah. This is where the teacher carefully makes a groups to satisfy some goal. Maybe the goal is to differentiate. So I'm going to make uh, um, ability groups. Maybe the goal is to increase productivity. I'll make mixed ability groups. Maybe yeah. the goal is just to have peace and quiet. So I'll keep certain students apart. Hmm. Whatever the goal is, the teacher forms really forms groups really carefully to meet that goal. This is called strategic grouping. Yeah. Um, and then, and this is a dominant strategy we see in primary school. Yes, sure. Um, in secondary school, we're more likely to see a teacher go work with who you want, which we call self-selected groups. And it turned out that neither of these were particularly effective at getting students to think, and ironically for the same reason. Um, in a study, it showed that we asked one question. We ran this massive survey. We asked one question. Yeah. If you knew you were going to work in groups today, what is the likelihood that you would offer an idea? And um, and eighty percent of students said that they were unlikely or highly unlikely to offer an idea mm. because they already knew what their role was, and then they just lived down to that role. And for eighty percent of students, their role is not to lead; it's to follow. Yeah. So, so how do we disrupt this? Well, our research showed that the most effective way to group students was to group them randomly, and there was some nuance there. It had to be visibly random. The kids had to yeah. see that it was random had to be frequent about once every 60 to 75 minutes. And there had to be groups of three. Um, and there's a lot of nuance around that, but it was amazingly transformative. Three weeks in, three weeks after starting that, we ran the same survey. If you knew you were gonna work in groups today to solve a task, what is the likelihood you would offer an idea? Remember the baseline data, data yeah. was 80% of students said that they were like unlikely or highly unlikely to offer an idea. After three weeks, 100% of students said that they were likely or highly likely to offer an idea. That's, That's the despite the fact that 50% said it probably won't lead to a solution, but I'm going to offer an idea. Yeah. They don't know what their role is. So they're more likely entering, they're entering to their groups already predisposed to offering an idea. Yeah. If students are entering into group work, collaboration on an assumption that they're not going to contribute, that they're not going to think, then what's the point? Yeah. Um, the third practice that you asked about is where students work. 
So now yeah. we've given them something to think about. We've given them someone to think with. Yeah. Now we have to give them somewhere to do that thinking. Yeah. And it turned out that the optimal practice, the optimal location was to have these random groups of three standing and working at vertical whiteboards. Yeah. Except they don't have to be whiteboards. They could just be, uh, they could be blackboards. It could be windows. It just had to be vertical and erasable. It yeah. could be a picnic table cover stapled to a bulletin board, side of a file cabinet, cellophane. Klaus Olsen sells these static cling whiteboard yeah. sheets that you can put up anywhere. Like it doesn't matter as long as it's vertical and erasable. Why erasable? Because risk is a barrier to thinking and students yeah. feel at risk. They don't feel safe to think. Making it erasable makes it safe for them to start. And because they, they make a mistake, they can just erase it. But why vertical? That's turned out to be a bunch of reasons. One is when it's vertical, uh, everyone in the group is oriented towards it the same way. So no one's looking at it sideways or upside down. When it's vertical, they can see each other's work. That promotes knowledge mobility so they can steal ideas. When it's vertical, I'm a better teacher. I don't have to wait till that quiz on Friday to see if the students understand it. I can see it right now and I can intervene yeah. right now. It's some continuous check for understanding then. Yeah, it's yeah. immediate formative feedback. And then I can teach into that space as needed. Um, but they were all eclipsed by one interesting fact, and that was that when students are sitting, they feel anonymous. And the further they sit from the teacher, the more anonymous they feel. And when teachers feel or students feel anonymous, they disengage. And that's both a conscious and a subconscious act. So it's not that standing is so is so good, it's that sitting is so bad. What standing did was it took away their anonymity and then they didn't yeah. disengage. Yeah. You know that baseline data I said earlier that in the classrooms I was observing, only 20% of students were thinking for 20% of the time. If we implement just those three practices, thinking tasks, random groups, vertical surfaces, we go from 20% of students thinking for 20% of the time to 80% of students thinking for 80% of the time. It's incredibly transformative. Yeah. Now, the other question you asked is why those three? Why are they the first yeah. three? Yeah. So there's 14 practices. I spent two years on after that studying what the optimal implementation uh, sequence was. And the data from that revealed that these 14 practices organize themselves into four toolkits. Yeah. Um, and the first toolkit is exactly these three practices. Yeah. So it's not my decision. That's empirical data that told us yeah. that. Yeah. What's been interesting is to try to understand why those three. So I think part of it is that it has a big impact. Like I said, we went from 20% of students thinking for 20% of the time yeah. to 80% thinking for 80% of the time. Um, I think they're easy to implement, to be honest. They might be a little frightening, but they are easy to implement, right? All I need is a deck of cards to randomize. I can find thinking tasks anywhere. Uh, and it's not hard to get kids vertical. There's lots of whiteboards and chalkboards and windows. Yeah, yeah. We can get them up and working, one marker per group. So yeah. I think there's an ease of implementation. Um, but I think the main reason is this. One of the things we found in our research was that students' behavior is incredibly shaped by their environment. And I mentioned this earlier. So if a student walks into a classroom that looks like every other classroom that they've walked into in the past, they're going to bring their same studenting behaviors is what I call them yeah. into that space. 
Uh, and so it comes with a lot of baggage. It doesn't matter how good a task you're picking. If the kids are going to walk in and sit in rows, they're just going to start behaving like they have every other day of their student career, which is to mimic. I think what these three practices do is that when you hand that student a card and send them to a whiteboard and give them a task, this is different. These three sure. practices together are so different that it's disarming to the students that there's nothing familiar about this so that they leave their mimicking habits at the door and they enter into that space and construct more positive uh, patterns of participation within these spaces. Mm. So short question, long, long answer. <laughs> uh, I reflected about using this uh, standing up in small group uh, sort of a nerd area for myself is sensor motor development. And, and I, I like sort of what you do there from, from that perspective. You have always a number of students with sensory needs that need to move. And mm -hmm. you don't have to do anything specific to, to take care of those needs. It will get no. automatically. So I, I like that from that perspective. Yeah. And I think this is, you know, there's so many students in our classrooms that we see as deficit or problematic yeah. because they have per peculiar needs um and every environment we put students in is going to accentuate or dampen some of these needs yeah. uh, and i think what a thinking classrooms does is it dampens a lot of needs because the environment is now more inviting yeah. for some of our neurodivergent students for example yeah i wondered about this number of, of three when you work or talk to people in sort of collaborative teaching that strategy they normally say like four or four up to six but normally yeah yeah more more, more people mm -hmm. i talked like a few weeks ago with professor paul kirchner who has been a professor of collaborative teaching mm -hmm. but he he says he don't promote that he says it works but it's so difficult to make it happen and i said for him him he says the key is to have really complex tasks uh to make that yeah. everyone is needed then. So so maybe. Right. I wonder how so you came is, up with three. Yeah. Okay. Again. Again, so, again, again. Yeah. yeah. So the, the thing about four is often that research is and the and the literature on four is really tightly coupled with assigning roles. Yeah. And so if we're going to have four, we also have to have roles for four, which yeah. is why I think this idea that you have to have really complex tasks so that everyone yeah. has something to do. Yeah. But the problem that we found was, because we tested that, yeah. we were hearing this all the time. So we said, okay, well, we're in this space, we're playing it, let's test it. We tested yeah. four groups of four. We also tested groups of three, We but for both of them, we assigned roles. Yeah, Assigning roles was not effective in our research. No. Uh, what it showed, like from a thinking perspective, it gave so many, so many students the opportunity to opt out of thinking yeah like so often i would approach and i would say so uh, so what do you think and they're like oh that's not my job right yeah. so when you yeah. give a student a job it means you take away everything else that they need to do especially a student who's not passionate about what's going on yeah um does that mean there's no roles in a thinking classroom there's definitely roles um there's tons of roles but the roles are negotiated and they're and they're dynamic. They're shifting yeah. constantly. You're a leader, I'm a follower. Now yeah. I'm a leader, you're a follower. Now, now we're both leaders and nobody's following. And now we're both followers because we're stuck and we're looking for someone else to take the lead. 
you know, but it's dynamic, it's negotiated. Um, and we found that to be much more effective. That sort of, we're not going to sign roles. Let's let the roles emerge. And this is why we had to switch the groups every 60 to 75 minutes. Yeah. Because then the roles stagnated. Yeah. Otherwise you get leader yeah. And everyone yeah. else was a follower. And, and now you have to scramble again. Yeah. But why three? So like, it was so clear to us because we tried yeah. so many different combinations and three emerged within months as being the dominant one. And now, it, and then it was a matter of how do we, how do we articulate that? Yeah. Uh, why is this a, why is this a case? Well, there's a couple of metrics. Number one, um, when we had groups of three, we heard three voices. Yeah. When we had groups of four, we heard three voices. Yeah. When we had groups of five, we heard two voices. Now, that's not to say that we can't overcome that, but we would have to work really hard to yeah. swim against that current. But groups of three, we heard three voices. There are some caveats. With very young students, we start with groups of two, yeah. but we're still striving for groups of three. Two, yeah. they just need to learn how to collaborate first. Anyway, the other way we can explain what's going on is through a theory called complexity theory. Yeah, Complexity theory says that in order for a collaborative group to be generative, it has to have both diversity and redundancy. Yeah. So diversity is what every, what redundancy is what every member of the, is sort of the common knowledge. In order for a group to even start to collaborate, they have to have some things in common. They have to have common knowledge, common language, common notation, common vocabulary. They need to have things in common in, even, in order to be able to start talking. But if all they have is redundancy, commonality, then the group is no stronger than the individual. Yeah. They also have to have diversity. Yeah. Diversity are the different ideas that every student brings. And what this research on complexity theory showed was that there has to be a balance between redundancy and diversity. So what happens when we increase the group size to four or five? Well, the diversity goes up. That's great. Yeah. But the redundancy comes down. Yeah. And when we go the other way, when we make the group smaller, the redundancy goes up, that's good, but the diversity goes down and that's yeah. bad. So we need to and find a balance three, between the two. Yeah, just seem to have that perfect balance. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's it's it feels strange when we live in a world where four has been promoted for so long. Yeah. But examine that. Has yeah. four actually worked for you, or do you find you're spending a lot of time trying to engage that one that fourth student? Huh. Interesting. I also thought about uh, if it's so effective working standing, uh, so wh why do we have to have furniture? And I mean, you still have furniture in the classrooms. So what what is sort of the good balance if a teacher works standing in these groups? And then they, if this, there is furniture, they will sit there once in a while. What, what is a good balance in between the two then? All right. So, well, funny enough, in theory, you don't need furniture. The problem is that you're often not the only teacher who uses that classroom. No, true. So like the pragmatics of it is the reality is that you still have this classroom has to be adaptive to a variety of different teachers. Yeah. Um, but there are moments in a thinking classroom where we sit them down. Yeah. So some very particular ones are when we have students making notes at the yeah. end of the lesson. Yeah. And that's note making versus note taking. They need to have somewhere to sit down. Now, we could argue that that's not necessary. But the same is true 
for when they're doing their check your understanding questions at the end, which is yeah. what we formally called homework. Um, having them do that at, at the board, or I mean, sitting down is hugely beneficial to them. Yeah. They also treat the opportunity to sit at the end of a lesson like this as a real like relief, right? Yeah. It's nice to be able to sit down. Yeah. Um, there are other ways we use, we have them sitting. For example, technology is something that should be in the classroom a lot, even if it's a thinking classroom. Yeah. But there are sort of a handful of ways that we use technology in the classroom. We use it as um, a calculator, a, uh, yeah. a computational tool, whether we're using a calculator or a graphing function, we're using it to produce solutions. The second way we use it is we use it as a search engine. Yeah. What is the er formula for an area of a frustrum, whatever? We look it up because we forget. Yeah. Um, the third way is as an exploratory tool. This is where we give them a lot of data or we give them a lot of questions and they have to graph them and use the graphs that they're seeing to start to spot patterns between the coefficients and try to yeah. come up with hypothesis. Right. So it's an exploratory tool. And fourth, it's a coding tool. Now, in a lot of places in the world, coding is part of the math curriculum. Yeah. Well, when we're coding and when we're um, exploring. Yeah. We need to be sitting. Yeah. And we sit in groups of two and one device per two students. That's what we found worked best. Um, but it's. You know, it's so there is there is opportunities where we want them in their seats. Yeah. But not many. So we don't have to have more seats than we need and so on. Yeah. Uh, it's about uh, doing it vertical and whiteboards. About whiteboards, uh, I interviewed uh, a British math teacher, Craig Barton, who, by the way, referred a lot to, to your work. But he uses a lot of mini whiteboards for his check for understanding. Mm -hmm. so we do that of, too. Yeah. At the end. So check your understanding questions are individual. Yeah. Actually, what we do is we have the kids working in a modality. It happened naturally and we saw it as powerful. We have them working in a mode that we call on their own together. Yeah. So working together, that's where at their whiteboards collaborating. Yeah. yeah. That's clearly together. When yeah. they're working at home alone, that's on their own. Yeah. But this is sort of a hybrid space. They're taking responsibility of their own check your understanding questions, but they're also yeah. talking to the student next to them. Hey, I got this. How come you got that? Yeah. Where did I go wrong? And then they're using each other as resources, but they're still owning their own learning. Yeah. So they're in this hybrid space, working yeah. alone together. We use individual whiteboards a lot within those spaces. Yeah. Uh, they're convenient. The kids feel comfortable with them and they just work individually, but yeah. in that individually on their own together. Yeah. Yeah. I also thought you talked about taking notes or taking, I mean, you're right about taking meaningful notes. Is that a bit, uh, I mean, you can do that uh, during something happened, you can do it after. I mean, if I connect it to sort of some small part of retrieval practice, do you sort of take notes from memory or from listening right. during? So what we, what we found didn't work was having students sit and follow like an I write, you write. So at the beginning yeah. of the lesson where the teacher spends 22 and a half minutes doing examples and the kids are writing them in their notes, we found yeah. wasn't very useful. 
No. Uh, and it wasn't useful primarily because the students were not cognitively engaged. They were there. They may even yeah. be writing, but they were yeah. not cognitively engaged. No. So we weren't seeing that connection between the writing and the organization and the math and so on. Yeah. Um, they also didn't use those notes very often. No. And we wasted a lot of time taking it. So what our research showed was a better alternative is to shift away from note taking to note making. Yeah. Right. Um, which is what happens after the experience. After the experience, the students are going to sit down and write some notes about what they learned. And we have well beyond what the book offers. We have been pushing on this for two and a half years, and there's new developments that is really effective. Yeah. And that's going to be in the new book that's coming out. But it's um, fundamentally, the difference is this. In yeah. a more normative classrooms, taking notes is the activity. Yeah. In a building thinking classroom, taking or making notes yeah. is a record of the activity. Yeah. And that's very different. Yeah. I agree. Uh, you're also writing about uh, flow. Can you sort of mm -hmm. comment on, on that a little bit? So, and, and a flow. question together with that is that connected? I mean, if I go to sort of uh cognitive scientists neuroscientists uh, they they refer to like uh, robert bjorks about desirable difficulties it, is that connected to to sort of well, being in flow it, maybe i think but, it is yeah um so flow comes from your high chicks and mahai and you know you talked about sport earlier yeah where athletes are in and you actually used the word flow yeah where athletes are in this zone where they are feeling like there's a perfect balance between the challenge that they're facing and their ability. Yeah. And, and they're in that space. And this is called flow. It comes from a high chicks and a high who did research on mathematicians, scientists, artists, musicians, athletes to begin with. Yeah. He's also done it on mountain bike riders. He's done it on computer programmers, but the original five involved both math and sport. Yeah. And what he found is that flow is this desirable state where you are so enthralled in your activity, you're so engaged yeah. that the time passes, you let go of self-doubt, um, and you just start enjoying the experience. And you want more of it. And this yeah. is what we want for our students. Um, so how do we construct flow? Yeah. If we know, if we, like, Chicks and Mahai's work was more like, let's find a flow experience and then analyze it. And my work was like, okay, if that's the experience we want, how are we going to manufacture it? Yeah. And the main way we manufacture it is through that balance between challenge and ability. So we start with really easy tasks. And as your ability grows, we increase the challenge. Yeah. Um, so it is tied to tasks and, and, and cognitive engagement with tasks, but there's something else at play here and it's very psychological. So it's, First of all, they're, they're, it's an affective experience. They're, they're engaged in the activity. It's, it's, they don't want to quit. No. Uh, the bell rings, they don't want to leave because they're in the state of flow. But they're also having what, I, what we call a mastery experience. So a mastery experience is, is, is this experience where the students know something and they know they know it. Yeah. And this is such a rare experience for students. 
So the fact that we can get students to this point where they know something and they know they know it becomes a highly engaging, highly interesting experience for them. And so having that sort of low floor, high ceiling, starting off soft, ensures success. And then as they progress, we increase the challenge. So that ensures challenge. So it's we're, we're not just creating flow, we're also creating this mastery experience. Yeah. Do you also, if you start like, so they feel success and then you raise the challenge, do you do like back to sports there? Is this like a, a cool down so they succeed in the end or could they sort of finish a lesson or if you're from well, a psychological what, point? Yeah. Right. So what we know is that if students, if towards the end of the lesson, like while they're in the lesson, while they're in their groups, they're doing great work, Right. Yeah. But it's very un unorganized, unstructured, and informal, right? They're spitballing. They're trying stuff. They're making it work. They're finding connections. But their ideas are still kind of floating outside of themselves. Yeah. And if the end of the lesson comes and they leave the room, those ideas are going to float away. Yeah. Because they haven't been anchored to anything. They haven't been sort of cognitized yet. Mm. Um, and that's what we have found of late. The closing is super important. How we close the lesson, um, uh, consolidation, meaningful notes, check your understanding questions are three practices that are specifically focused on how we close the lesson for the purpose of um, helping the students reify their learning to solidify it, turn it into retained learning and so on yeah. and so forth. Um, so notes is an important part of that. Consolidation is an important part. Yeah. And check your understanding is important. And they all happen at the end of the lesson. Yeah. We so have could, to so do could, it. Yeah. So you could say that you connect to experience in, in the long-term memory then. You make it retrievable by doing that. Well, I think I'm no neuroscience. Well, I'm no, 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 neuroscience. no. I just tend to translate to, to other yeah. talks because it feels like the same mechanisms. Yeah. But in other so words. I think, I think what happens is when the students are having an experience in the classroom. Yeah. It becomes episodic. Yeah. It becomes an episode. Now, episodic memory stores itself differently. Yeah. It stores itself in long-term memory, easier retrieval, and it and it's encoded with the affect of the experience. Yeah. So I'm having this positive experience in my classroom. I'm working away. It, because it's an experience, it lodges itself in memory as an episode, episodic memory, long, greater longevity. And then, and then what, when it's triggered, the feelings come back when I get yeah. this memory and it, it comes back and that's good, both positive and negative. Yeah. If students, if a student is being called out for being wrong and they're being yeah. publicly shamed, it's creating an episode that lodges itself in the memory and is encoded by all that negative emotion. Right. Yeah. So it happens both ways. Um, but I just think that, that, that having these experiences, the experience shouldn't be note-taking. The experience yeah. needs to be the thinking and the meaning-making. And yeah. then it lodges itself differently. What <laughs> the closing does is it helps fine-tune what it is being lodged there. Yeah. Yeah. You also write about mobility or that, that people uh, learn together. I mean, there's small groups, but it sounds like more collaboration as well because you use sort of hints from other. Can you sort of elaborate a little bit on that? So it's not just 
collaboration. It's not mm. just groups. It's no. groups within groups. Yeah. And with the visibility of their work, knowledge mobility is so much easier to, to create where yeah. one idea from a group transfers to another idea for, for the group. The smartest person in the room is the room. How do we yeah. get that knowledge moving around the room? And so there's a chapter dedicated to how we actually facilitate that. To some extent, it will develop naturally. What the practice does is show you how to accelerate it because the acceleration of it is 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 important because once students become better at mobilizing knowledge, yeah. our job gets easier, their learning gets deeper. So it's so it's really about groups embedded within groups. Yeah. Which is I think one of the new contributions here. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds really, really interesting. I also thought about, because you're right about formative assessment, when I talked to Dylan William about formative assessment, he promotes sort of short cycle formative assessment, what happens within the classroom during the lesson. So yeah. to prepare the lesson well, they don't waste time afterwards. And it seems like the vertical spaces gives you interesting opportunities as a teacher. Right. There's so much formative assessment that happens there. But there's two types of formative assessment, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a formative assessment that informs a teacher. Yeah. And that's what Thinking Classrooms does really well because there's so much feedback in that space. Yeah. But there's also formative assessment that informs the learner. Yeah. Now, this is different. That's that feedback mechanism where they're getting almost like self-evaluation, but think of it more as a feedback loop where they're extracting feedback from their efforts from the groups around them. Oh, we got the same thing they did or that we got something different. Let's go talk to them. Like, like there's constant opportunities for them to, to improve by, yeah. by, by having access to information that can inform them of where they are and where they're going. Yeah. Yeah. And it's more complex, but it's definitely more long-term than short-term. Um, yeah. Because I think that the formative assessment that informs teaching yeah. can have a short-term cycle, but the, yeah. the um, formative assessment that informs learning has a large, longer trajectory, I think. Yeah, yeah. I was also wondering if you have sort of kids in the classroom, really limited short-term memory difficulties in managing sort of problems. So they don't have sort of automated any tools to have it. Those with a large memory, they can make it at the same time. But yeah, how, how does it work? Do you have to do adaptations somehow to sort of... Yeah, we yeah. can create adaptations. But these adaptations, ironically, are good for all students. Yeah. So one of the, a huge part of mathematics is spotting the pattern. Yeah. Right. Not just I'm going to give you a pattern, spot the pattern, but I'm going to do this dividing decimals. I'm going to multiply and uh, subtract yeah. equipment until I can figure out how much we actually have. Um, so, oh, I lost my thought there. <laughs> so you're going to have to do some editing. Um, what were you talking about? Yeah, about the, the people with small, uh, small. Oh yeah, really okay, yes, right, working yes. memory. Yeah, right. Make them ironically. Yeah, talking about short-term memory, I lost my memory. Um, <laughs> yeah. So. so, one of the things that we have found is that that pattern spotting is really important. But yeah. when they work on whiteboards, they're constantly erasing. Yeah. Now, with students who are taking their experience, lodging it in their memory, and then doing the next one, they're able to connect the memory of the previous one to what's on the board now 
and then again and again and again, and they're able yeah. to spot patterns, but the patterns aren't necessarily visible because they're living in their memory. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we found works really well to help students spot the pattern is we divide the board into four or six like sections. Yeah. Um, and they do the first task in the first one, and they do the second task in the second one, yeah. and the third task in the third one, and so on. And when they finish, yeah. when they complete the board, they do the next one where the one had been before. And yeah. the first one. So they have some time with them left then. Yeah. Yeah. So me as a teacher, I yeah. can see the work evolving and I have more opportunities to give feedback before it gets erased. That's yeah. good for my formative assessment that informs teaching. Yeah. Really they also have more access to what's there for longer yeah. and they can start to extract patterns. Yeah. So this is a, this is an adaptation that is actually good for all students. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. That reduced load on the working memory and also helps sort of retrieval. Yeah. Right. And it's it, interesting. But, but it just everything yeah. down in the classroom for the teacher. But, but to make it, how big does this board needs to have? So to, what is there like an optimal yeah. size to make it? Well, more is better. Yeah. Um, but then you have to deal with the realities of the confines of the yeah. classroom. Yeah. What we found is that the minimum is about 60 centimeters by 90 centimeters. Yeah. Um, but, but there's also, so that's a minimum size of the whiteboard. Yeah. But you also need some room on either side of you. So it's yeah. not like you're going to have a 60 by 90 centimeter whiteboard right next to another 60 by 90. <laughs> no, no, you need space for the group, yeah. And a little right. in you between, need to maybe. spread it out yeah. so that students have a bit more room. Yeah. But, yeah, that's about that's about the minimum size that we found works. Yeah. I don't have any specific empirical data. No, 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 but yes, sort of an idea what, what, what you've seen. Like when it works. gets too small... It's hard for them to step back and see what others are doing. Yeah. Yeah, it has to have some height yeah. to it. Yeah. You also have a chapter on this with furniture. We said we didn't yeah. need furniture, but but also that uh, it, it isn't sort of directed to, to the front. Can you sort of say something about that as well? Yeah. Because that is interesting. And that is something that every teacher is so used to standing in the front. So it's, yeah. it's a shift that. So we had, this one actually didn't em, em, emerge sort of uh, strategically the way the other practices do. The other practices were like, okay, here's the core practice. Let's okay. tear it down. Furniture placement didn't emerge that way. Um, what happened was when we started implementing those first three practices, right? The thinking tasks, the random groups of vertical surfaces. We would go into classrooms and reproduce the results over and over and over again. Yep, yep, yep. We're getting the kids thinking this is great. Every once in a while, it wouldn't work that great, but okay, that's fine. We'd call that an outlier, throw it away, do it some more. Oh, there's another outlier. And outliers are totally fine from a statistical perspective, but the problem is from a humanist or an equity perspective, yeah. this is the kind of thing that drives teachers bananas. What do you mean it doesn't work that well sometimes? So... I started examining why it wasn't working well. So looking yeah. at the data, the ones situations where it didn't work. And what we noticed was every time we were doing research in one of those beautifully organized classrooms where everything is sort of fronted and the kids are, every desk is facing forward and the kids are paying attention to the teacher who's at the front and, yeah. and they're 
projector screens at the front and the teacher's desk is at the front. Mm -hmm. Whenever we did research in those classrooms, we had a tougher time getting students to think. Mm. Um, they were being micromanaged, right? Yeah. Um, in many ways in that space. So what did we do instead? So we the opposite was, okay, we need to defront the classroom. If heavily fronted classrooms create this problem, we need to defront it. Um, well, there are, there are, as mentioned, four things that front the classroom. Yeah. Where the teacher's desk is, where the projector screen is, where uh, the teacher stands and where all the desks are pointed. Yeah. When we have all of those four things together, that's a heavily fronted classroom. How can we spread these apart, right? And, and when we do that, we end up with what's called a defronted classroom, which is where students are sitting facing every which way. Um, and the teacher teaches from anywhere in the room just to create greater access and so on. Um, and that turns out to work really, really well. Connected to that, if you have, let's say you have like 24 students in the room, they have like eight boards. Uh, could you yeah. use, do you leave if you have, normally maybe you have a really large whiteboard in the front. Do mm -hmm. some groups use that or yeah. do you have, yeah. Oh yeah. If you have a big whiteboard in the room, use it. Yeah. Yeah. So use every. So every... we try we try to spread them out all the way around the room. Yeah. We also learned that we can't have islands. Like we can't just have one group working by themselves with nobody close by. No. They just don't. There just isn't enough transfer of knowledge for them or transfer of emotions for them. So in quite many many classrooms, you also have a small group room. Uh, I know I have received questions from teachers. Can, can I put sort of a group of whiteboard within that as well yeah or, or do you lose transfer can you articulate a little bit more what you uh, mean by if you have like let, let's say we have 24 students you have seven groups yeah. out in the large classroom and one group in the group room in the group in room so there's a group room yeah yeah in our school, for instance, yeah, in, in Swedish schools, it's quite common that you have a, a small room connected where you can go ah, in and have, yeah. Okay, now I understand. Yeah, yeah, connected uh, within, it's sort of within the classroom, but it's, it's a door. It can be open, yes, of course. Yeah. So those, that space turns out to be really uh, essential if you have some, a student who has really high intolerance for sensory. Yeah, things, yeah, then it's perfect. Yeah, then it's perfect. Someone yeah. who has a cochlear implant or yeah. they, 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 they need to reduce the stimulus and so on. But otherwise, we try to keep everyone together. There just yeah. isn't enough. Like we see this happen. We'll have six groups yeah. inside and two in the hallway. And then the two in the hallway, they just never. Yeah. Really yeah. yeah. Or one. Well, the funny one is you'll have seven groups along kind of one wall and then one yeah. at the back wall. And the one at the back wall, they actually have the best view. Yeah, over but they the others, yeah. aren't infected by the enthusiasm of the people around them. No. So it's so no, we want to keep that all, all the groups in the room, yeah, in the main room, but so, use that room if as necessary yeah. for small group instruction for yourself, or if you need to have any sort of sensory dampening for a student. Yeah. So maybe you want a board in that room as well. So you have so if you have like eight times three, you would have nine boards then. So that would yeah. be an extra would be better there. Yeah. Yeah. That you can start using. It's always yeah. more is better. If you can get up get more boards up, get more boards up. 
Yeah. Another question of real interest in is grading that every teacher has to work. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that is a big question. Yeah. And I think the, the chapter you have on grading is, I think, of extreme interesting to, to any teacher. That is really not uh, subject specific for me. It, no, it's not. Right. Um, the chapter on grading is really about how can we shift our practice from a point gathering paradigm to a data gathering paradigm? Yeah. So a point gathering paradigm is like, we have a quiz on Friday. It's worth 15 points. Yeah. We have a big unit test in two weeks. It's worth 50 points. We have a project due that's worth 80 points. Homework is worth 20 points. Report card time. We add it all up mm. and we divide by what they could have got. Like it's really a matter of how many points did you get versus how many points could you have gotten? Yeah. Um, so that's the sort of point gathering, also known as event-based grading. Yeah. And, and that's what we see dominating, at least in North America, in classrooms. And there's a whole bunch of problems with it. One is it's incredibly, um, it's not, not objective. It's very not objective. Um, students are punished for early not knowing, yeah. and it drags their grade down. Uh, students don't, they, they don't know where they are. Right. Uh, yeah. And they don't know where they're going. So it's so we need to create alternate structures. And the structure I leaned into was a standards based or outcomes based grading, um, which exists anywhere. And I don't need to go into the details yeah, of that. Yeah. It's what we basically call the data gathering. Yeah. Um, and. And what it does is it allows teachers to track student performance discreetly across a number of different events, a quiz, a test, observation, conversation, um, students handing something in to show a portfolio. Like it, it allows us to track what students are actually capable of doing rather than yeah. in the point gathering, we're tracking what they're incapable of doing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's shifting that point gathering allows us to make more and better informed teaching this, uh, decisions around students. Yeah, that's that's interesting and important to discuss among because uh, <clears throat> sort of could we say the old system is uh, quite dominant in Sweden as well, and yeah. we have a new curriculum that actually should enhance this this shift. So so what you're suggesting goes very well in line with our curriculum. So I hope we will get in yeah. that direction. So my second last question is about. Uh, answering questions because that is also really interesting uh-huh. yeah uh, because so, you write about what what type of question you answer and, yeah. and why and why you do like that so there are so there it turns out that there's not a lot of research written on how to answer questions there, there's a lot of research on how to ask questions yeah effective questioning yeah sure but how to answer so we have to kind of start all over and we, first of all, documented how many questions teachers answer, and it's a huge number. Um, and then, and then we, we, hold on, I lost my thought there. Um, we started looking at the types of questions that students are, are yeah. asking, and, and it's a huge number. Like some teachers were answering two to 300 questions in a day. Yeah. But then we started looking at the types of questions that they're asking. And it turns out that students only ask three types of questions. Yeah. The first one is called a proximity question. This is a question they ask just because you happen to be close by. Yeah. So you come close by and they're like, hey, on this one here, 
are we supposed to find one answer or multiple answers, right? Like, and what's interesting about that is when the teacher steps away, I step in and I observe. And 90% of the time, um, the students make no use of the information the teacher provided, hmm. which means that they don't care what your answer was. It wasn't about getting information from you. They weren't asking you at all. They were wanting to show you that they're being a good student. And hmm. the best way to show you they're being a good student is to ask a question. Um, then we had stop thinking questions. Is this right? Are we doing this right? Are we going in the right direction? Is this what you want? Is this going to be on the test? Stop thinking questions are those questions that they ask so that they can stop thinking. Thinking is hard. If you yeah. would just tell me this is right, I can stop thinking. But we don't want them to stop thinking. And the third type is a keep thinking question. They're usually clarifying questions. So let me get this right. So on tax collector, on that task, does a tax collector take one factor or do they take all the factors, right? Like they're not asking so they can stop doing the task. They're asking so that they can get back to doing the task. Yeah. Uh, very different phenomena. Um, of those three types of questions, which one should we be answering? And of course the answer is just the, the keep thinking questions. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. Yeah. Uh... My last yeah, question. There's oh, more. Yeah. There's more to this, actually. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. You know, we used to talk about self-efficacy a lot. Yeah. And ben did yeah. Yeah. Yes. That, that's the key. Yeah. Yeah. And what we discovered, like, you know, the research has told us this for decades, centuries, yeah. that students with low self-efficacy perform poor. Students with high self-efficacy perform well. Yeah. So the question has always been, how do we get students with a poor self-efficacy to get a, to have a high self-efficacy? Yeah. And um. One of the things that we have shown is that students don't listen to what we say. They listen to what we do. Yeah. So how do we communicate to them that they are capable? So first of all, students have to meet a teacher that believes in them. But because yeah. students don't listen to what teachers say, the teacher has to show them that they believe in them. And yeah. the two number one ways that we found that did that was random groups because kids say the teacher wouldn't put us do random groups if we weren't all the same. If we weren't all capable, the teacher wouldn't do random groups. Um, it's the other one is how we answer questions by smiling and walking away and so on and so forth, which empowers students, ironically enough, to, to, to start to see that we have faith in them, that yeah. they start to believe in themselves. I just started thinking about efficacy. I mean, in, in the research about study results, you talk about sort of collective teacher efficacy. I mean, in, in your classroom, could you maybe talk about collective student efficacy as well as, as a factor for sort of their, yeah. their results? So I actually had a master's student who did her thesis on this. And yeah, random groups highly enhanced collective self-efficacy meaning that and and we can think of collective self-efficacy in two ways yeah one is the confidence i have in my group yeah okay the second one is the confidence that we as a group have in our yeah. own ability as a yeah. group to be successful um and both of these are affected by things like random groups in positive ways um it just that sort of collective efficacy comes from 
being able to celebrate our victories together. Yeah. Okay, my last one. I've covered sort of uh, the keys I wanted to talk about based on on reading your book. Mm-hmm. That's interesting enough. Is uh, in Swedish as well. So I read uh, oh, the two okay. of them. Yeah, yeah. And was it a good translation? Uh, yes, it was. Sometimes yeah. uh, it isn't. Therefore, I wanted to read uh, okay. both the original and, and the yeah. Swedish one. But it it was really good. Good. Uh, yeah. Uh, so. In your sort of concept for thinking math classroom, is there yeah. any key points that we have haven't covered that you would like to add? That think of this, don't miss out. You you need to include this. Right, I think. You know, um, you know, I, I live in Canada. In Canada, yeah. we have this thing called helicopter parents. Yeah, helicopter parents are is a metaphor we use for parents who hover very close to their students and are always yeah. there. And in Sweden, you talk about curling parents. Yeah. And uh, what do curling parents do? They clear the path for the students, right? Yeah. Well, aren't we often as teachers, curling teachers, right? Like we we anticipate the barriers, then we remove the barriers to ease yeah. the way. And then, but in doing that, we forget that it's the rough patches where the, where the learning happens. Yeah. Um, so I think a key, one of the key takeaways is to really start checking our own behavior and what it is we're doing. Are we over teaching? Are we over explaining? Are we sucking the thinking out of the environment, out of the task? Can we, can we say less? Right. Um, the second thing I'll say is this, the goal is thinking there are 14, uh, macro moves and a hundred and something micro moves. Yeah. It's easy to lose sight of what it is we're trying to do as we're trying to focus on those moves. Yeah. Keep your eye on thinking. Yeah. Make that your philosophical goal. It'll help guide you as you're you're working through each of these practices. Yeah. yeah. So there is there are some things that can help us yes. keep our eye on the ball, so to speak. Excellent. That was perfect uh, final words. And I just would like to say that uh, if you're a Swedish listener. Uh, visit what we call Matte Biennalen in Örebro in the third week in in March. March. Yeah, then you have an excellent opportunity to listen to yeah. Professor Lilidal again. Yeah, so do that. And I'm actually and... I'm actually going to talk more about the details the the details of the new research into how to close out a thinking classroom lesson. Ah, so interesting. Yeah. So we'll see you there. And thank yeah. you so much. Thank Looking you so much. Thanks for the conversation. Oh, 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 oh,